Well, now hand over to Al, who's going to um, yeah, share to us about the heart of Christianity. Okay, thank you, Jack. Well, it's great to be here with you today. Um, what's Easter? About uh, 10 days away. Now, uh, Easter is, is ultimately uh, the general population refer to, uh, or the way of referring to the Passover. And the Passover meal, which means so much to Jewish people and then also to Christians, is about three and a half thousand years old. Three and a half thousand years it's been celebrated. Uh, I'd put it to you that maybe, just maybe, we have kind of, uh, let me see here, um, trivialised it. I What's, Easter's now become uh, bunnies and uh, chocolate eggs and, okay, there we go, there's Easter. Although I did see something the other day that I might get involved in. Uh, Woolworths now have the complete your Easter with uh, hot cross bun ice cream. I thought, well, you know, mm, I like ice cream. Maybe, maybe we've just kind of uh, trivialised things just, just a little. Because what, when you really, if you drill down, I hope you enjoy your Easter holidays, etc. Uh, but if you drill down on what, what Easter means, at the heart of it is actually a scandal. Now, what a scandal mean? Here we go. A scandal, an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong and causing general public outrage. If you think about it, if you know anything about Easter, um, I would encourage you, if you haven't, to read the Gospel stories as all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, focus on the death of Jesus. Um, if you read it, all sorts of scandals there. So, for example, uh, what, what do we see? We see a dissenting voice crushed by religious power and bureaucracy and institutions. You see that happen. We see an innocent man murdered in, in kind of a judicial plot, uh, and out of that it's called Good Friday. How can that be the case? And then, well, we've trivialised it with bunnies and chocolate, etc. All right. But, you know, there's one scandal that Christians cannot avoid. And uh, if, you're, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you, I, it's great that you're here and you can talk to your friends maybe who do follow Jesus. But there's one scandal that Christians can't avoid. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus himself does it. And when you see it, it actually does seem, well, morally or legally wrong, or how can that be? And yet, at the same time, it's the, it's the beating heart of the Christian message. And when some people understand this, they want nothing to do with it, and others say yes and embrace it. And why does it matter? Well, it's about, the scandal I want to talk to you about is about what Christians believe about the afterlife, about life or existence beyond death. And you might say, well, you know, that's just wishful thinking. Well, it is interesting, isn't it, that almost, well, pretty much every culture I know of, with a, with a couple of exceptions, but pretty much every culture I know of through history has had this belief or this yearning for life beyond this one. You can say, well, that's just wishful thinking. Now, it may be. You say, well, it's, it's the atheist who has the courage to face and say, no, there's nothing. But you know, the wishful thinking argument has two edges, two sides on it, two sides to the coin. And that is, given the binary nature of what the Bible says about life or existence beyond this one, and forgive me, I've just got to be blunt, when the Bible says about heaven or hell and the consequences of ignoring God, you can mount a pretty good argument that atheism is actually just wishful thinking for that choice, that 
terrible alternative to actually go away. So wishful thinking, it just making it up, possibly. Wishful thinking that it would just go away. Well, see what you decide out of today. Uh, what's the point? The, the fundamental thing, that the background, if you like, to this scandal is the Bible's teaching that God, the God of the Bible, the creator, the one who made each of us in his image, is fundamentally just. And that there will be a judgment day, that God cares very much. Each one of us created in his image, how we act towards him and how we treat each other really matters, and there'll be a judgment day. And God will be just, and those who've spent their lives ignoring him, walking away from him, will be sent away from him, given what they've asked for. And those who've embraced him, have followed him, have trusted him, will be welcomed into well, what the Bible talks of as eternal life. And it's not, that's not, in the, in the end point, that's not Casper the ghost and kind of a, a vague spiritual existence. The Bible promises a new creation where uh, we will live the way that we were meant to be before we messed it all up. The Bible's picture language for it is whether we know more mourning or crying or pain and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so the question uh, that we'll look at today is the scandal about who or how do you get to go there? Who is it that the God of the Bible says or that Jesus says can have eternal life? Who will go there and who won't? All right, let's have a look. Now, as you came in, you were given a part of Luke's gospel. And uh, rather than go through so many slides, death by PowerPoint, I thought I'd walk through this with you. Uh, what do we know about Luke? Luke was a doctor, uh, the New Testament tells us, probably from Syria. Uh, and he wrote, he said he set out, he interviewed people. He wasn't an eyewitness himself, but he interviewed people and, um, and wrote the story of Jesus and we do know that Luke travelled with the Apostle Paul uh, during kind of the uh, the 40s and 50s AD. Um, and uh, interesting, now, did I just say that Luke was not Jewish? Yeah, that's of, of, of all of the New Testament writers, Luke is the one who is a Gentile, not Jewish. And that's why he has a kind of a special interest in, um, uh, in people who are Gentiles. And because he was a doctor, he has special interest in the poor, the marginalised, the battlers, if you like. Now we get to his account of the crucifixion of Jesus and I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 23. I want to read the story and here's your mission. See if you can pick out what I'm talking about when I say the scandal about eternal life. What is there that seems kind of morally um, uh, shady or, or that Jesus says it just doesn't seem quite right? Let me read it for you. Uh, Luke chapter 23 verse 26, you may like to follow along. As the soldiers led him away, that's Jesus, as they led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it before Jesus. Now, Jesus was probably too weak after being scourged, uh, flogged within an inch of his life. They put the crossbar of the cross on the condemned man. Usually he was too weak to carry it. They put it on this man, Simon from Cyrene. And then Jesus speaks to the women of Jerusalem and warns them about the terrible things that will come to Jerusalem within that generation, things that happened in the year 70. Uh, another story. Let me read from verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right 
the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hung there, who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you, un- you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now this man, as he's usually referred to, the thief on the cross, um, is an evildoer, he's a criminal, uh, he has done terrible things, I'll come back to that in a moment. And at the 11th hour, 59 minutes and 59 seconds, he says to Jesus, "Uh, I'm sorry, and Jesus says, you're with me, buddy, eternal life. How can that be just? He's done wrong things all his life. He's hurt and damaged other people, that's obvious. And yet, in the last minute, and this is absolutely the last minute, he reaches out and says, I'm sorry, and Jesus says, you're in. And of all the people in the New Testament, you can guarantee that he's in because Jesus says, you'll be with me today in paradise. Paradise is a way, the word derives from the idea of a garden. It's a picture of eternal life being with Jesus. Now, I'm going to walk you through again from verse 32 and and pull it apart and show you what is going on and how, in some ways, it is a scandal. And as I said, some people will see this and say, I don't want anything to do with it. And others will say, this is life-changing and I'll embrace it and it does transform you. So let's have a look. Let me read to you again from verse 32. And we'll just pull it apart, tease it out. Two other men, both criminals, right, were also led out with him to be executed. And so very often when you see something about Christianity, you see the three crosses, Jesus in the middle and two uh, criminals, as Luke puts it. Now, Luke's word here just means evildoers. Okay, so they're literally evildoers. You put that together. What's interesting is that Matthew and Mark, as they write, use the word... Um, Lestere heirs, uh, which means, here we go, it can mean robber, bandit, or insurrectionist. Insurrectionist. And why is, why is that interesting? Well, as far as I know, as I understand, the Romans didn't generally crucify. Crucifixion was the ultimate penalty. The Romans didn't crucify common thieves. What you had to do was actually challenge the power of Rome in order to be crucified. And it may well be that these two men were insurrectionists or we might use the word today terrorists against the state. As you know, you know, one person's uh, terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. And so they have done terrible things, but somehow they've challenged Rome. The irony that we might see is this. These two men are dying and they are genuinely guilty of the trumped up charge that Jesus has been charged with. He was not guilty of it, and yet he died as a because the trumped-up charge was that he challenged Rome. 
So two evildoers or possibly insurrectionists are on either side of him. See verse 38. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Now the other gospels tell us was put there by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, in a way to, um, to mock the Jews. The Jewish leaders asked to have it taken down. Uh, it was a multilingual city. And so uh, John tells us that the sign was written in Aramaic. Uh, Aramaic is kind of a, a sister language to Hebrew. Aramaic, Latin and Greek. And uh, perhaps it would have looked something like that. And so the sign goes up above Jesus' head. What they would do in those days is actually to put the fear of, not the fear of God, to put the fear of Rome into people, they would put a sign above the person who was crucified with their crime. And Pilate has said, he is the king of the Jews, mocking the Jews. Three languages. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there um, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now, the word Messiah, if you're not, if you're not used to reading the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, well, right back from the beginning of Genesis, has been promising that God would send his great king. And the, uh, the Hebrew word for the great king is Messiah, which means the anointed one or the chosen one. Uh, the way to say that in Greek is Christos. So when you, if you hear the name Jesus Christ, it's actually saying Jesus Messiah or Jesus anointed one or Jesus great king. And what's promised during the Old Testament is that God would send his great king, the Messiah, and when he came, he would conquer God's enemies, he would set God's people free, he would set up God's kingdom, and, um, you know, everything would be great. And so uh, the rumours were that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. In fact, on the night as he tried for his life, he finally admits, yes, I am the Messiah, and here he is crucified. So you can imagine why one of these criminals is kind of is mocking him and angry and you're supposed to be the messiah and here we are you know you're dying with us not much of a messiah you see what happens verse 40 but the other criminal rebuked him don't you fear god he said since you are under the same sentence we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve now what's he just done he's told the other guy shut up and then he's actually admitted that he's done wrong and done wrong before God. And if you look at verse, um, okay, don't you fear God, he said, right? Like the idea before God. And then verse 41, he says, we are punished justly and getting what our deeds deserve. He must have done something very bad. He's in the middle of being crucified. He said, well, you know, I deserve this. That, that really is bad. And it's before God. Now, I wonder if I could just kind of ask Gently, in, in the friendliest possible way. Do you ever, do you ever think about guilt before God? Do you ever think that maybe you're, you're guilty before God? One day they asked Jesus, what are the, what's the most important commandment? You know, if God's the creator and the judge, what's the most important commandment that, that, that God has for us? And Jesus, out of the whole thousand pages or whatever it is of the Old Testament, said there's two, two commandments. It's quite simple, really. The second of them, well, I think we've all heard it. The second of them is this, love your neighbour as yourself. Treat other people the way that you would want to be treated. Now, I'd, I'd put it to you, everybody agrees with that. Just pretty much everybody. Uh, I worked for City Bible Forum, um, in the city, we run 
Bible forums. Um, anyway, <laughs> who would have thought? Uh, so we have these, these forums, and I tell people, I talk with suits about Jesus. And uh, it's good, we get to, to run things, and, and sometimes we invite people onto a panel to discuss things. And I remember one day we invited a man who's quite an outspoken atheist, uh, friendly guy, and we would have the atheist and the Christian have a discussion. And uh, I won't say who he was, uh, but uh, he said, well, I guess, I guess I'm kind of a Christian atheist. Went, really? And he said, yeah, because I, I, I like this kind of um, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I like that stuff. All right, okay. Now, pretty, I think pretty much everyone knows it's right. But you know what? We don't do it. We know it's right, but we don't do it. And I, I was talking to a man the other day, and I, um, I realised... Everyone has that kind of morality. Everyone. You think, really? I said, yeah. Um, it just depends where you draw the circle. What I mean is this. Let's, let's pick an organisation that you would think, um, no, no, let's go back. Pretty much everybody agrees, well, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't um, be unfaithful with someone's partner, you shouldn't um, kill. Okay. Yep. So let's pick an organisation that seems really immoral and see. Um, here we go. The mafia, okay? Um, Organised crime. Think, yeah, well, they, they don't have morality. Well, yes, they do. Okay, I've seen enough movies with Robert De Niro in it to know. Okay. <laughs> uh, you, you go join the mafia, okay? Do whatever it is the ceremony is, yep. And then you try lying to them or stealing from them or taking someone's wife or girlfriend, huh? or bad-mouthing them, or shooting the wrong put, and all of a sudden life is going to get very awkward for you. Now, if the mafia believes... But what's the point? Well, the point is where do you draw the line? If you're in the mafia, okay, well, the movies say anyway, if you're in the mafia, the line is around the family, right? Okay? And so you've got to have those... you, You can't steal or lie or cheat anyone in the family. Everyone else outside is fine. Some of us might draw the line around our own family, or maybe our own tribe, yeah, however you want to define that. Or some people might even draw it just around themselves. Because everybody I know gets annoyed if they're lied to, stolen from. We just, we just know that's right. And you know what? Jesus says there isn't a line. You cannot draw a line and say outside of that morality doesn't get... In fact, that's the whole point if you've read... Luke chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We know it's true. Treat your neighbour as you'd want to be treated, and we don't do it. And why does it matter? Well, God says it matters how we treat other people because every human being is made in the image of God and has value, and God will hold us accountable. You know what? If that makes you feel a little awkward, that's only number two. Number one's even more awkward. And Jesus said the first and the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. All your heart, soul, mind. In other words, love the one who gave you life with everything in your life, with everything you've got. Love him. Why? Because he's good and he's wise and he wants what's best for you. Now, most many people I thought think, well, yeah, okay, I'm all right with God and I, I, God and I just don't, Talk much. I don't have a little story for you and see if you can work out how, how you are with God. Can you imagine? Actually, I don't know if this is going to work. When I talk to people my age or a little bit younger, I say to them, 
Can you imagine uh, being a parent with, uh, with teenage kids? Now, that's going to be a bit more of a strain for some of you. Um, when I tell the story, you can imagine being the teenager if you want, all right? So it's a little bit... Anyway. So I say to the middle-aged people, imagine you're a parent and you've got a... Let's pick a daughter. You've got a teenage daughter. And imagine that she's a good girl. She keeps all the rules. She keeps her room tidy. She does her studies. She vacuums the pool. She mows the lawn. And when she borrows the car, she puts some petrol in it. Okay? I know it's science fiction, but just come with me. All right? And then I go, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, how do you get that? And I say, just imagine there's one problem. She doesn't talk to you. She doesn't respect you. She doesn't acknowledge all of the good things that you give her. She keeps the rules, but she ignores you. She doesn't love you, respect you. It's There's no talk. In fact, the only time might be when she asks you for something like the car keys. And then I say to this audience, to the, the parents, is that acceptable? Is there any parent that would say that that's acceptable? And even if you're imagining you're the teenage daughter, do you think your parents would say it was acceptable? Of course not. What's required? Well, it's relationship, honour, respect, love is the place to start. Keeping your room tidy, that's way down the priority list. Now, folks, let me ask you, isn't that how we so often treat God? That we take all the good things that God gives us, and if you're sitting in this room, there is a bucket load of good things in your life. Right. We, we take all the good things that God gives us and then we ignore him. We don't honour him, we don't respect him, we don't etc. And God says that unacceptable. And maybe we haven't been as bad as the, you know, the criminal on the cross, but unacceptable. But you know, you know our problem, we keep on thinking that it's about being good or good enough to kind of, we get used to being good to impress authority figures in our life. We just think, oh, if I can just be good enough, then that'll impress God. I'll tell you how deep-seated it is. There's a church in uh, Melbourne. I won't say which church in case somebody might actually listen to this recording, but I walked past this church in the CBD of Melbourne, and they've spent all this money to have a kind of a statue or freeze. Does anyone know what you call one of those really flat statues? Well, I'll go for a statue. This is outside their church, and you notice the inscription says, Jesus speaks to the good thief. And I thought, nice, uh, nice statue. Pity no one read the uh, text. Because why? Well, the guy has just finished saying, I'm evil enough to be crucified and deserve it. And Jesus then speaks to him. It should say, Jesus speaks to the bad thief, evil thief, uh, well, anyway, repentant thief. See verse 41. He acknowledges that he's done wrong and then acknowledges that Jesus is innocent. See verse 41. But this man has done nothing wrong. Acknowledges that Jesus is innocent. I'll come back to that in a moment. And then verse 42. Then he said, this is the man who acknowledges that he's evil. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, who is it that has a kingdom? Answer is... Thank you, Captain Obvious. All right. The answer is a king. And so this man somehow looks at Jesus as he's dying in agony and realizes that he is actually God's king, the one who is promised. He is the Messiah, that his death will not be the end, that somehow Jesus will have a kingdom, that 
Jesus is the one who can take him into eternity. Now, I've wondered, how is it, do you think, that this man, the criminal, knows that Jesus is the king? Maybe he, he heard Jesus teach and, um, you know, John's gospel tells us no one ever taught like Jesus did. Or uh, maybe he saw Jesus do the miracles that, that healed people, maybe. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I was doing a, a Christianity Explained course um, with a man and uh, with a group, and there was one man there from Mongolia. Now, I haven't met many people from Mongolia, and he was kind of just off the plane, and he was interested to know what Christianity is about. And this man was absolutely fresh to Christianity, so to speak, because as we're reading Luke's gospel, his English was functional. We're reading through Luke's gospel, and we got to the point, chapter twenty-three, and he said, "What is crucify?" He had no idea about the crucifixion, what it meant. Like so, I thought, buddy, you are starting fresh, which is a good thing. Like you see things fresh. So I'm there, you know, waxing on. I've read this a hundred times. How did he know that um, uh, Jesus was the Messiah? Maybe he saw miracles. Maybe he heard Jesus teach. And and this little man from um, Mongolia said, maybe, maybe he read the sign. And I looked down and thought, yeah. There's a sign above his head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, isn't that, isn't that beautiful to come with fresh eyes and see that? And I wonder if that man looked over and saw that sign and God switched the lights on. So what does he do? He reads the sign, he understands, he admits that he's done wrong, he acknowledges Jesus as King, and then uh, he reaches out, and says, Jesus, remember me. Now, remember is not uh, Jesus saying, oh, yeah, what was that guy's name? Remember is, look after me, take me with you. Right? It's, it's reaching out in trust that Jesus will forgive him and take him to be with him. You see Jesus' answer, verse 43? Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, here's what I like. You notice what the criminal doesn't do. There's the promise of eternal life with Jesus. But the criminal doesn't, he doesn't get baptized. Okay? He doesn't have any kind of religious ceremony. He doesn't do penance. He doesn't, he just what? Admits that he's done wrong, acknowledges who Jesus is and reaches out in trust. And there's the promise that he will have eternal life. And why do I believe that Jesus kept the promise? Because I think the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead on that Sunday morning is very strong. Very strong. In fact, if you've never looked, have a look. Um, in a little while, Jack will tell you how you can check it out. The evidence that Jesus actually rose, and you might want to ask questions about that if I can shut up in time. Um, uh, it's very strong that Jesus actually... I and mean, if Jesus rose again as he promised, his promise to this criminal will hold. But here's where you get to the scandal part. Hasn't this man done evil, damaged other people? It's 11th hour, 59 minutes, and he says, whoops, I'm sorry, and Jesus says, you're in. How can that be just? How can that be just? That's the beating heart of Christianity. Let me explain. Why is it, why is it so hard to forgive someone? Okay. If you, and I don't mean just a little petty thing. If someone's done something really wrong to you, it's really hard to forgive, isn't it? The reason is this, when someone hurts you, you have a kind of a moral right to hurt them back. 
You have a moral right to take some kind, you know, they injure you, you have a moral right to injure them back. And to not do that, to forgive them, is not to retaliate, not to punish them. You have to suck it up yourself. You have to absorb the wrong. Now, that's close to what is happening here as Jesus dies. Let me explain to you what the cross of Jesus is about, and this is the best explanation you will ever hear. No one will ever top this. I'll tell you why. Because this is God's explanation, God's way of explaining it. About 1,400 years before Jesus, God set up a ceremony to be repeated again and again and again to teach the people of Israel how forgiveness worked. This is what happened. So um, if someone from the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, man or woman, if they did something wrong, if they broke God's laws and they knew that they were guilty, what they, they're guilty, they deserve to die. They deserve to be separated from God and lose their life. What they were to do is this. They were to go out to, the, to their, their herds and they were to take a perfect animal. It could have been a bull, a goat or a sheep. Um, well, let's take, take a sheep. They were to bring a sheep, a year old, a perfect little lamb. Lamb innocent, the, the person is guilty. And they were to take that lamb to the temple where God had promised to meet with them and they were to put their hand on the head of the animal. And that was to symbolize that somehow they're guilty, but an innocent one could carry the guilt. And then the lamb was killed. Its throat was cut and its blood was poured out. The blood poured out the idea of life being poured out. Now that was to teach them a whole lot of things. What? That guilt meant death, but somehow someone else could carry that guilt and they could be forgiven. But it meant the other party, the innocent one, had to die. Now, that ceremony was repeated again and again and again, thousands of times over those 1,400 years. And if people did that with trust in God, they were forgiven, but not because the lamb died, but because every one of those ceremonies looked forward to that day in the year 33, that Friday morning, when Jesus, who is called, you may have heard, the Lamb of God, took our place. And God put my guilt and your guilt on his lamb. And Jesus died in our place so that we can be forgiven. Now, that's not unjust. I'll tell you why. It's not like God takes this and puts and puts it, we've offended God, we've broken his laws. God needs to absorb that somehow. It's not that God puts it on an innocent third party because Jesus is very clear that he is actually God himself become one of us to stand in our place. It's God the judge taking the penalty himself so that we can be forgiven. And that is why Jesus can say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because Jesus is paying the price of even that man's guilt. So, yeah, is it a scandal? Well, it's a scandal of grace, undeserved generosity. And you notice to be Christian is not a matter of religious actions. It's not about being baptized in the right way or doing the right penance or whatever it is. It's about acknowledging guilt, sorry, about admitting guilt, acknowledging Jesus as king and asking for forgiveness. How will you react? Some people say, no, I don't want anything to do with this. I have to humble myself. Other people will say, I want that gift. I'll humble myself. I'll admit that I need to be forgiven and ask for it. Now, 
I said I became a, a follower of Jesus 40 years ago. I did. How? By praying a prayer just like this one. And I'm going to actually invite you, if you'd like, some of you have been reading the Bible. Some of you know that this is true and you're right on the edge. If, if you want to take that step to become a follower of Jesus the way I did, I'm going to invite you, if you'd like, to pray this prayer. For everyone else, we'll only take a moment and uh, I invite you to pray, though, uh, silently in your own heart. Will you pray with me if you'd like to? I'll, I'm going to pray sentence by sentence. I'll pause. If you'd like to pray after me, you can. Dear God, I admit that I have not loved you with my whole heart or loved other people as I should. Please forgive me because Jesus died in my place. Please help me to live with him as my king and to know the promise of eternal life. Amen.